This week, I have had the privilege, as I do every week, of being involved in a number of people's lives. It's one of the great joys of being a pastor that you are given the opportunity to walk alongside people when life is going well and sometimes when life is not going well. And to seek to be the hands and the feet of the Lord Jesus into those situations is a privilege and a burden. You always want to make sure that you are listening carefully to the Holy Spirit and seeking to be faithful to him in what he might want to say into a family. In one of those encounters this week, I believe that God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, was speaking fresh revelation into the folk that I was with around how they could see their lives and how they could manage or navigate the season that they were in. I'll not go into the details of their circumstances because I uh, would never do that. But I, I sensed God gave me something to say to them. And that was that he was calling them to adopt a posture of presence instead of an attitude of absence. I haven't been able to get the conversation out of my mind. And for the second or third time in 34 years, I believe that a pastoral encounter has led to a direct instruction around a word that I want to bring to you as a church. That God would have our church hear this word. And that he would call us, each of us, in our circumstances, whatever they might be, to adopt a posture of presence instead of an attitude of absence. And I want to try and explain to you what that means and why I think it is so profoundly important and then give an opportunity for God by the power of his Holy Spirit to continue his work amongst us. Would you turn to a couple of portions in the Bible with me, please? The first is Matthew chapter 28. And then the second is Hebrews chapter 13. Matthew chapter 28. This is the end of the um, Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is about to ascend. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember. I am with you always to the end of the age. Now turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 
Let mutual love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them. Those who are being tortured as though you yourselves are being tortured. Let marriage be held in honor by all and let the marriage bed be kept undefiled. For God will judge fornicators and adulterers. Keep your lives free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. Not only is the context of the passage the one that I find we find ourselves in in scripture here, but the context of this passage for us today is whatever you find your life in. Wherever you are and whatever you are facing. My academic discipline is at one of something called public and pastoral theology. And that means that um, when I come to engage with God, when I think about words about God, when I try to think about what God is like and how I can relate to him, there are at least three different texts that I have a responsibility of looking at. Many people within the evangelical church, particularly preachers, think that there are two. There are more than two. So, for example, the great evangelical scholar John Stott talks about when, you come to, when you're a preacher, you have to engage in something called the art of double listening. That's listening to the text of Scripture, making sure you're hearing what God is saying through it. And to do that carefully, you have to examine the context. You need to know when it was said, who it was said by, why it was said, where it was said, how it was said. But he also talks about listening to the context of the public culture, the life, the, the, the world that we live in, the challenges that are facing our society. I think that is true. I would extend that. He doesn't do this, but I would extend that to say that if I'm going to be a faithful pastor to you, it's impossible, of course, for me to listen to the context of five or 600 people. But I must think about not just where Northern Ireland, Ireland's culture is, or Europe's culture is, or the world's culture is, that is the task of theology anyway, I must think about your life. I must think about your circumstances. I must think about what you are facing and ask God to show me how this word that he has laid on my heart or this book that he has given to his people can speak into your circumstances. And therefore... You and I must grapple with the Bible together in our context. Because if you think about it, if all I'm going to do is say this is the context of the Bible and this is the context of the wider culture, why you can do that through reading a commentary. You can do that through listening to an online sermon from somebody else somewhere else. Can't you? 
It's not my job to preach this message into North America. It's not my job to preach this message into Paris or into Berlin or into London or into Madrid, although I thank God that he will use it like that through, his, through the online family that we have. But my primary job is to preach whatever God gives me into this community, into your life, into our situations. And to do that, I must also have a third text. And that third text is our lives together. Listening and looking for what God might want to say into our situations. Because you can discover fresh revelation about God in your daily living. You can discover something of God's purposes and plans for you that will never contradict Scripture. If it does, then it's not of God. But you can discover fresh fresh ideas about what God might want for you by thinking about where your life and the biblical text intersect and how you live out your faith today. So let's think about that for just a few moments. The two passages that I've read to you are very important. The context of the first one, Matthew chapter 28, is that Jesus is about to go to heaven. The disciples have just seen their best friend killed. He has risen again. He has spent 40 days instructing them about who they are and what they are to do and how they are to live. He never calls them to make converts, interestingly. The task of the church is not to make converts. That's God's task. The task of the church is to make disciples. Very different thing. And he tells them that they have to do that, that they have to baptize and that they have to teach and that they have to lead people into all wisdom and knowledge, that they have to help others to follow Jesus. And then he says, because the all authority in earth and heaven has been given to me, you can do this. And that verse that I read to you, that I paused that, he says, and remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The God who is about to go reminds them that he is the God that stays. They're about to witness Jesus' physical resurrected body going into heaven. However that went, they're about to see it. And what he says to them is, remember, I am with you always. In other words, I think, it might feel like I have gone, but I am here. It might feel like you can't see me because you're not able to physically see me, but I am here. And the remember is very strong. It's, it's a command. Do not forget. They're about to see the final departure of the physical resurrected Jesus from earth of history. He has never returned in physical form. He will at the end of time. But at this moment, he is saying to his people, remember, it might look like I have gone, but I am still here. The second context is really interesting. In Hebrews chapter 13, whoever wrote it is trying to help the people of God understand that Jesus can be trusted, that God is faithful and that he is present with them. And he says several things in the passage that I think are particularly important. But he uses that word again, verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 13. Remember, but this time, not remember that God is here. He will say that in verse 6. He says two things. 
Remember those who are in prison. And remember those who are being tortured as if you were in prison, as if you were being tortured. Then in verse 5, he tells them not to worry about their physical security, not to worry about whether they have enough money or whether they are um, uh, secure enough. And he says this in verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? And he quotes from Joshua. In other words, in Hebrews chapter 13, what the writer is saying is two things. You can face anything. Anything. You can be content in anything. If you remember that I'm your helper, that I'm here. You forget that, you're in trouble. You remember that, and it will keep you strong. But the other thing that he's saying in Hebrews chapter 13 is, remember those that are in prison or being tortured for their faith as if you were with them. There are two sides of this idea of presence in those two passages. Can you see them? The idea of God always being with us, which I'm going to unpack with you for a few moments. But also the idea of us being present with others. I want to invite you today to adopt a posture of presence instead of an attitude of absence in your life. And that presence is not something you chase after. And this is going to sound like a criticism. It is not a criticism, but it is a critique of some aspects of charismatic and Pentecostal theology today. If you position yourself with an attitude of absence, then you're always looking for God's presence. You're chasing it. His presence is in America. His presence is in that church. His presence is in that church. His presence is in that church. His presence is in that meeting. His presence falls when they worship. His presence is over there. His presence is in that movement. His presence is there or there or there or there or there. And as a Pentecostal theologian, I hear that and I think that can sound so like Pentecostal theology, but it is the opposite. Because by having an attitude of absence, you're always looking for where God is. You convince yourself that that is somewhere else. That's the opposite of Pentecostal theology, which believes that God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, is here. And here is wherever you are. He is in this fellowship. He is in this message. He is in your workplace. He's with you at a graveside. He's with you when you're told bad news by a doctor. He's with you when you buy your first house. He's with you when you get engaged. He's with you when you go through heartbreak. He's with you when you are on the highs or in the lows. But if you adopt an attitude of absence, I must find where God is. It's a wrong theology dressed up in Pentecostal words. And it ultimately leads to a life driven by crisis. 
God's only here if I feel him. He's only here if I sense him. He's only here if there's an emotional response in me. That's not biblical. And it's not pastorally helpful. An attitude of absence makes us people who are never content. The opposite of Hebrews 13. How do you handle money issues, worry issues, practical issues? Be content in this promise. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. What a remarkable thing. And I want to suggest something to you without it sounding arrogant or presumptuous. One of the things that God is doing in this church, and he does unique things in churches, is drawing people to be part of this community for this very reason. We are a community that is committed to this simple idea. God is with us. He's with us in the workplace. He's with us in the home place. He's with us in the church space. And it is in our weakness and our vulnerability and our honesty and our transparency and our ability to say we're not sure, we don't always feel this, life can be difficult, but we're building our life on the conviction that God is with us, that he is at work amongst us and that he will not leave us. An attitude of absence sounds spiritual but ends up destroying spiritual lives. Because folk exist from one meeting to another, from one spiritual high to another, from one crisis to another, from one sense of encounter to another. I'm not sure that's how God intends us to live, sisters and brothers. I think he intends us to live in the reality of an ordinary life made extraordinary by the presence of Christ. That will never be taken away. That will never be removed from us. But there's more to it than that. Think about how this works out. I've been working through the book of Ephesians on Sunday mornings online. And this morning I was exploring Ephesians 6, 18 and following. Um, pray in the spirit at all times. With all prayer and supplication. Therefore be alert and always pray for all the saints. There's so many always and at all times in that situation and those instructions. Adopt an attitude where you are always praying. How can you do that if God is not always present? John chapter 15 verse 5. Jesus on the same night as he was betrayed turns to his disciples over a meal and he says, Without me, you can't do anything. In fact, he says, without me, you can do nothing. That's a theology rooted in presence, not in absence. Psalm 139. When we think God cannot see what we are going through, he doesn't understand. Hear the words of the psalmist. Where can I go from your presence? Whither can I go from you? If I go to the depths of the earth, you're there. If I escape to the heights, you are there. Everywhere you are. There is nowhere that you can be that God is not. It's a challenge for us to try and work this out for ourselves. And here's the challenge. It doesn't always feel like that. 
it sometimes feel, feels like God has left us. Well, clearly, I'm the only one in the room who has ever experienced such a sense. Thomas Merton once wrote this, God, who is everywhere, never leaves us. Yet he, sees some, yet he seems sometimes to be present and sometimes to be absent. If we do not know God, we do not realize that he may be more present to us when he is absent than when he is present. I think some of you might have just scratched your head. <laughs> How can he be more absent, present in his absence? Well, let me explain differently without getting emotional about it, or trying not to anyway. Three different lessons from my life. Last Monday, many of you will identify with this, Debbie and I left our little girl to the airport to go back to university. And as she left, she turned and looked at us and started to cry. And I looked at her and I started to cry. I didn't cry once when she was here. (laughs) I might have cried for different reasons. (laughs) Clean your room. No, I'm only kidding. Her absence intensifies my sense of her presence. My dad lived from 1931 to 2002. For lots of different reasons, I didn't once cry when he was alive because I missed him. But I regularly do now. His absence intensifies my sense of longing for his presence. That's one of the reasons that you can find that so challenging. The third, without embarrassing Matthew, and I'm not going to talk about Matthew and Eve, don't worry was last night as I was driving over to celebrate their engagement, we went up up over the Craig Antlet Hills. And you'd hardly think that he was once a nine foot zero ounce child, would you? Now that he's six foot five. And as I went up over the hills and crossed that crossroads where they're building that church that never seems to get finished. (laughs) Do you know the one I'm talking about? Everybody knows the one I'm talking about. Um, I had this powerful, powerful memory of holding him and thinking he'll be getting married in 10 months and he won't be in our house. I'm not sad about that, I'm just emotional about it. (laughs) There are moments in our lives when the the perceived absence of God is evidence of a profound presence that we need and we yearn for. And when you begin to realize that, something begins to shift in you. But if you live in an attitude of absence, then what you're doing in those moments is not holding on to the promise of his presence You're panicking because you don't think he's there. And I wonder how many families, how many ministries, how many lives 
are wrought, are broken apart by this constant pressure to fail, to know, to, 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 in, to, 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 to be living in a, in, in a spiritual high. When actually what God wants to do more than anything else is bring a new ministry of pluddership to our lives. Remembering that he is always with us. A posture of presence orientates itself to this conviction. You promised me you wouldn't go. And I'm holding on to that. I'm holding on to that. So I will view my circumstances through a conviction that you're with me in them. And if I don't feel you, it doesn't mean you're not there. It means that I will have to dig into my conviction rather than in my, into my emotion. I am looking at people that have had to do this again and again and again across this fellowship for years. When you live out of the conviction that God's promises are strong, it doesn't make the situation easier, but it gives you grace to be carried through it. That you can face it because he's there. And then your posture becomes not one of panic, not one of fear, not one of, I have to get out of this situation, but one of, even here I can find you. Even in this set of circumstances, I can discover you. Even when everything is dry and life feels like it is withering, I can stand and declare the praises of God and you will give me the energy, the strength, the faith, the courage, the hope, the honesty, the vulnerability that is required to walk through this. Now imagine for a moment which church you want to be part of. The church where how you feel some of the time is not a disqualification for your relationship with God or a fellowship where when you come through the door you have to learn the answer I'm fine you always have to sing in celebration you're not allowed to lament you're not allowed to ask you're not allowed to weep you're not allowed to struggle you're not allowed to be honest and when you get sick you're afraid to go in case of in case you have to say something to people. When you face uncertainty, you don't know what to do. I want to be part of a community where I can bring everything of who I am into the presence of God without fearing I have to apologize for it. I want a Pentecostal theology that is deeply rooted in a, in a more profound sense of this promise. I will never leave you. I'm not walking away. When Moses said to uh, God in Exodus chapter 3, I don't really want this job. That's the Northern Ireland version of the story. <laughs> I can't do this. God's response in verse 12 in our Bibles was not even to answer the question. He said, I am with you. I didn't ask you to do it, Moses. I asked you to let me do it through you. How many mornings have you got up and said, I can't do this? How many conversations? How many appointments? How many 
circumstances have you walked into saying, I can't do this? How many days have you walked into an empty bedroom or walked down and into a living room and said, I can't do this? And maybe God is whispering back, I can. You are weaker than you realize, but I am closer than you could ever hope. You are less able than you will ever be able to comprehend, but I am more faithful than you could ever imagine. That sounds like a verse in Ephesians chapter 3 to me. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above anything that we ask or think according to the power, his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church now and forevermore. Amen. When Elijah in the book of Kings faced his encounter with God at the cave, God, had, God was close enough that Elijah could hear him whisper. If I got the music turned up and the speaker's blaring and asked you all to turn up whatever knobs you need to turn up and asked you all to sing at the top of your voice and Adam was still sitting here. If I whisper here, he can't hear me. If I whisper here, he can't hear me. If I whisper here, he can't hear me. But if I go, don't freak out. But if I go right down and whisper into his ear, it doesn't matter how loud the noise is around me, he'll hear me. We preach Elijah's message and encounter with God at Horeb as if it's about um, the earthquake and the fire and all of that. It's about the nearness of God. I'm close enough to you that you can hear me whisper. And what about the overarching purpose of the church? Many of you will have watched with interest the stories over the last couple of weeks about um, Meghan and Harry. Am I allowed to call them their Royal Highnesses today or not? <laughs> they were last week, their Royal Highnesses. This week it looks like they're not going to be. And the whole complicated story about Two people that want to live a life of their own. I'm not going to comment on that. But what I want to comment on for a moment is the Queen's second public statement about it. In which she makes clear that she, they're not going to be called HRH anymore. They're going to pay back the money that they got for Frogmore House. They could change the name at the same time, couldn't they? <laughs> Where do you live, Frogmore House? doesn't sound like you should spend £2.4 million on it, does it? <laughs> Harry's getting stripped of his titles, his, his military titles and roles. But in the Queen's statement, what she said is, they will always be a precious member, members of my family. Their external circumstances don't change their relationship to the sovereign Where is the kingdom of God evidenced? Wherever the king is and his people are present. And the king is with us. And you might make choices that make you feel like you're no longer a member of the royal family. 
Your circumstances might make you feel like you are distant and you've lost your power and your authority. Some of those may, you may have chosen, some may have been forced upon you. But there is nothing that can change the reality that when you are a child of the king, you are a child of the king. And he is always with his people. He is always there. So where do we find life for this kind of existence? Because I need a vocabulary that can help me articulate that dual sense of believing in his presence, but sometimes sensing his absence, don't you? I need a set of language that can help me say that without me feeling as if I'm being faithless. Where is the intersection between absence and presence that can see me through? It's called the Psalms. We've, given, we've been given 150 of them. Where are you, God? Why have you abandoned me, Lord? Why do you seem to bless my enemies? Why are you not delivering me? Why are you not helping me? The hymn book of the Israel, the people of Israel, the backbone of praise and worship in any Christian denomination should be the reality that the Psalms offers us of being able to stand together and raise our voices in hope or in lament or in sorrow or in joy or in struggle or in question or in uncertainty and still know that God is present. A church that cannot cry together cannot grow together. A family that can't wrestle with the reality of what it means to put Christ at the center of their heartbreak cannot be a family that can thrive when God blesses them. The challenge is to learn to live with this deep sense of God's presence. A posture that says, you are always here. And I want to say something to you because it deeply concerns me. There are people that will chase after the toppy, fluffy, upper layer of God's presence and you will miss the power of a postured life that will carry you through the storm when your world falls apart. Because the theology that you hold will collapse in upon you and you will find yourself living from crisis to crisis to crisis. But God has promised to be with us. So I invite you to posture yourself in presence in three ways. Posture yourself in presence to God. You are here. Wherever here is. Whatever it looks like. However uncertain and complex your life may be. The only thing that I can hold on to for to you to hold on to you hold on for you to God in prayer. You probably lost what I was trying to say anyway. <laughs> the only thing that I can hold on to for you is that God is always there. It's how we see him as there that matters. He's not there as a bystander. He's not there as a spectator. He's there weeping with you.
He's there experiencing your uncertainty. He's there acknowledging the profound difficulty of your life at this moment. And he is there to carry you. But be present in your life. Maybe for some of us, this is more important than others. It's important for all of us. But if you spend your life waiting on something getting better, you're going to miss an awful lot. He's present in these circumstances. In this moment. And none of us are guaranteed tomorrow's moment. So to live in this moment, to live in this gift of time, and not to spend your life trying to live somebody else's life. Oh, I wish I had a house like them. I wish my kids were as clever as theirs. I wish our church was like that one. Don't you see that what you're doing is constantly spending your life yearning to be somewhere else? And as a result, you miss the joy of this moment. Some of you will sit around a dinner table this afternoon and smile at people that you've smiled at for 30 years and think, another lunch. (laughs) Cherish that moment. Because there are a lot of people here that will sit on their own this lunchtime. And they would give anything to be looking at that old face again. Some of you are looking at what other people have. If I had children like theirs, or cars like theirs, or houses like theirs, or money like theirs, I would be happy. Don't you see, you'll never be happy. According to Hebrews 13, we are happy when we know that God is here. Count your blessings, name them one by one. And then thirdly and lastly... Be present to each other. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews says, identify and show support to those that are in prison as if you were in prison with them. Identify and show support to those that are being tortured as if you were being tortured. Paul says, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Sometimes I think we're good at this as a church and sometimes I don't think we're very good at it. But to be present to another person is to hear their story. It's to be willing to make our lives vulnerable to one another. I don't know if you've ever spent time with people who didn't really want to spend time with you. Have you ever been in that situation? It's horrible. People who think they're doing you a favor by coming to your house and eating your lunch and spending your money. 
Do you know what? There comes a point when people have to make choices about that. I can't control how other people in my family, in my relationships, in my church, or in my community respond to me. That doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. But I can make a choice that says, I am going to be present to you. I'm going to see you. I'm going to hear you. I'm going to not be put off by every other voice standing in a line behind you saying, can I just have, can I just have, can I just have? Do you know where I find this hardest and where the great discipline of it is wonderful for me? At that door going out on a Sunday morning. When you have 400 people and you want to be present to each one, so you look at them and you look behind them and you think there's another 150 coming. (laughs) But in that moment... And it might only be, and I want you to understand this, it's not me bigging myself up. This is me trying to practice this theology. The reason I go to that door is not to look good. The reason I stand out there sometimes in the freezing cold (laughs) is I want to see you. I want to be present with you, even if it's only for one second. That moment as the pastor of this church matters to me. Some of you that are here earlier on Sunday morning will see nearly every Sunday morning I will, or Sunday night, I will walk up that aisle and you'll all hear me because you almost think I'm mad. Hello, 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 hello. And you probably think I'm not even stopping to see if you're there. I am stopping to see if you're there. And I walk up that aisle and along here and down that aisle and up those stairs, and along that back bit, and down those stairs, and then come back down here, and by that stage it's normally about one minute and 35 seconds with that music that drives me mad playing in that thing, (laughs) before the service starts. Maybe we can change the music, Stuart, every now and again. (laughs) But I am present. I'm practicing presence in that. And after the service, before I go home, I will walk around and always come over here and see the young people and see the young people, be blessed, see what they're doing and say, how are you? Good to see you. God bless you all. That's me trying to practice presence. Be present to the person in front of you. Whether it's a work colleague, a husband, a wife, a mother, a father, a son, a daughter, or a friend, turn away from the device in your hand and toward the face in front of you. Be present. I want to invite you to practice a theology of presence for a month. Present to God. Present to life. And present to one another. And see what God does with it. And do it all lodged in this. He is present with us. How do you navigate the tension of I'm feeling absent and feeling present at the same time?
Reflect with me for a moment on some of the most sacred moments of the biblical story. As Jesus dies, cast your mind over all the things that he says on the cross. Not particularly in order, but let's think about them. To his mother, he is present. And he says, woman, behold your son. To his friend, he is present. And he says, son, behold your mother. And he establishes a relationship of love between John and Mary. To a thief who is dying beside him, he is present and says, today, you will be with me in paradise. To you and I, he is present as he cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But there's another bit of the story. Something that is remarkably moving. This same man, as he dies, this same death expresses a cry of utter aloneness and abandonment at the same time as crying an utter prayer of trust and presence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And within moments, into your hands I commend my spirit. Two opposite prayers in the same season. He is not the only one that's prayed that. Where are you, God? I can't get through this without you. We've all prayed it. He can only pray the, present, the prayer of presence because he's honest about absence, but it is the honesty about absence that leads him to presence. And we join that here. He is, he is not in these elements physically. He is absent from them. This is just bread. This is just a cup of Ribena expertly put together by our prep team. But God is not physically present and yet we meet him in this moment. Every Sunday of your life you practice a theology of presence and absence. And all that you might be able to do today is open your mouth and receive in faith a bit of cut pan loaf. But by eating it, you are saying, you are enough for me. Your death is enough for me. Your resurrection is enough for me. Your spirit is enough for me. By drinking this cup, you are saying, what you have done brings you to me even when I don't feel that you are here. You practice it every week. As we worship, 
We acknowledge his presence and power amongst us. So to the couple that I saw this week, whose fault this sermon is, thank you for inviting me into the presence of your lives and for being present in mine. To every one of you that think at times, I don't want to take up his time. He's too busy. I'm never too busy. You carry the presence of God when I sit with you. And I learn more about God from you than you will ever know. If we could adopt that posture toward one another, toward every encounter, What might our community look like? Amen.